Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is Paul. Paul is a uh, mutual follower on Twitter. He's a member of the Austin DSA chapter and recently had a run-in with the, uh, we'll call him the symbolic mayor of Austin now that uh, that Leslie is dead, uh, Alex Jones. So Paul, uh, it's it's pretty fucking cool, honestly, I think, to uh, meet a, a fellow uh, mutual follower on offline. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I probably told you this before, but uh, I'm probably easily one of the dumbest people you'll have on this podcast. But I, I mean, I'm on every episode, so <laughs> I don't know. That That's arguable. We, we'll have to take a listener poll for <laughs> to determine yeah. if that's true or not. But uh, um, the reason we sort of you're here today is uh, primarily because... You had you and some. I guess is it was it fellow DSA people. Yeah, so we were actually coming back from a, a panel presentation of uh, Alex Vitale. Uh, if you've ever heard of him, he wrote the End of Policing. So they were t- kind of talking about like how to get rid of police and uh, all the good that that would do. And uh, we basically got out of that, tried to grab dinner, only to recogni- realize that uh, Alex Jones was there. And so this was at Lucy's Chicken? Yeah, Lucy's Fried Chicken on uh, South Congress. On South Congress, okay. So walk me through the whole, like, the instigate. So you guys walk in and he's there, or what was what was that scenario like? Yeah, so uh, basically, if you don't know what Lucy's is like, it's uh, they've got, like, a little outdoor patio area and, like, a bar area inside. Uh, so we kind of like started sitting down and everything and people started ordering, you know, getting food. And eventually someone went to the bathroom, which is in the bar area. And they were like, holy shit, Alex Jones is here, <laughs> you know? And, uh, we did that classic thing of like, you know, one person says, don't look now. And everybody starts <laughs> looking over at him and, you know, uh, it kind of got like, people were like, oh, should we do anything? Would we do anything? And, uh. I was just sitting there. Uh, I went to school up in uh, up in Albany, and I have a few friends from Newtown, and so I was just sitting there thinking, like, getting trying to like you know rational rationalize like what saying, I "Hey, <laughs> I see I see Alex Jones, and uh, I'm posting about it online, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, is it moral to like literally not do anything?" And so yeah. I eventually I just kind of worked myself up to like worked yourself up to engaging him with logic and reason yeah and obviously your best like ben shapiro like oh yeah yeah <laughs> no i i ended up uh, deciding to go up to the bar and debate him <laughs> and uh my my version of debate was uh basically saying hey jones eat shit man fuck you and flipping the bird <laughs> and so after that, I just basically walked down, walked back, sat down, and uh, went back to eating. It was, it was nice to be able to eat again now that I had that off my conscience. And uh, maybe 15 minutes later, Alex Jones, because, you know, he's a coward and doesn't doesn't want to get kicked out before he pays his food. Uh, once he was done eating, he came over to us and started uh, recording us. It was like, Oh, you, you leftists, you're all scum. You don't have in, any interest. You're not going to breed or anything, uh, you know, uh, in his typical... Uh, Blustery com- tone. We'll yeah, say. completely <laughs> insane uh, shit. Um, I'm trying to eat some goddamn chicken. These fucking libtards come over here and I rub my chicken dinner. <laughs> you're telling me to eat shit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, he 
yeah, he kind of lost it. Uh, he almost got into a fight with a union electrician, which, uh, let me tell you, probably... At, at Lucy's? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, fighting a construction worker at Lucy's probably wouldn't have ended well for uh, Alex Jones. But, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's looking a little puffy these days. Yeah, holy shit, man. Whew. Uh, yeah, the, one, the biggest takeaway for me is that he is exactly as red as he looks on the internet <laughs> in real life. Just this red uh, compressed ball of anger and you know visceral disgust for his fellow man uh so you know he he pretty much like yelled at us a bunch and uh one of my friends kind of stood up to like absorb the spectacle and uh he was just kind of standing there like staring at him and uh, after he realized he wasn't going to get a fight, uh, he like whipped around and he was like, and this guy's just looking at me. And uh, and Alex, God bless him, just stares straight into the camera and goes, dude, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and so he realized that he's probably not going to get anything out of Alex and uh, <laughs> turned around and went to go harass some other people. Um, yeah, it was pretty surreal. It was... Uh, pretty funny stuff honestly if you ask me it wasn't i mean you know jones he's not going to fight anybody so it's it was pretty harmless <laughs> uh what uh what night was this because was this ah, fuck i can't remember was when this sad. was but i definitely i remember seeing your post and then maybe some other friends of yours or mutual followers mm-hmm. were posting about we're at lucy's and alex jones is here on a date yeah yeah uh yeah it was saturday night saturday uh, night, okay yeah um, and man, uh, some of my comrades talked to, uh, talk to the date. Oh God. <laughs> and, oh man. Let me tell you, that's some depressing shit because she was like, yeah, this happens a lot, but I'm like trying to change him. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. That's, that's some sad stuff. You hate to see that. <laughs> you do. You really hate to see, <laughs> you hate to see that. But, uh, you know, uh, hope, <laughs> hope. Hopefully, uh, you know, she, she's uh, making her own way in the world. And, you know, uh, from from the divorce proceedings, it does not sound like he's a very pleasant man to be around. Uh, so I'm keeping her in my thoughts. I'll definitely put this in the show notes. But if anybody is curious, this is um, you can view some of this video on the uh, r slash Austin subreddit. Ooh. <laughs> there's about uh, like right now we've it's got about. Well, I guess there's a. Uh, there's a couple of threads here. There's one on the Austin subreddit that's got 976 upvotes, 803 comments. But there's a public freakout also um, post that has like 45,000 upvotes mm-hmm. and almost 9,000 comments. So <laughs> uh, you can kind of see the whole thing. Well, I yeah. guess after you kind of told him to fuck off, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, when he comes up and berates uh, your crew there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, luckily for me, I was really not in the in the video after that. I'm not. Yeah, I don't remember seeing you. No. I was like, I, that's what I was kind of wondering. <laughs> I was like, because you posted some photos on your feed and stuff, and I was like, yeah, I didn't see you anywhere. But yeah, I was like in the back there. At some point, it like pans across, and you can like see me by the wall. But uh, other than that, I was I was I I kind of got got it out of my system. You know, just flipping him off and telling him to eat shit. <laughs> uh i don't i didn't really feel the need to uh you know yell at him anymore i was kind of done with that <clears throat> but uh yeah interesting experience uh would do it again 
I have no qualms about <laughs> exactly what I've done as, as, uh, as much as the internet would like to admonish, uh, DSA and people like us who <laughs> yelled at him. Yeah. I mean, fucking this guy is, I mean, the Newton stuff and the crisis actor shit alone, I think is enough to like, if you're going to be peddling that kind of crap, it's one thing when like, you know, we were talking about earlier having, uh, you know, some crazy fucking conspiracy theories about FEMA camps and whatever. But whenever you're like, you know, because didn't someone commit suicide recently? Yeah, very recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Related to that whole Yep. He scenario? was one of the people who was being actively targeted by Jones and his followers. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Jones has blood on his hands. Oh, uh, for sure. I'm not going to pretend like what I or what DSA did was particularly heroic, right? Yeah. Um, because... I mean, you get two reactions, right? People who are like, I can't believe you would do this. He's just <laughs> trying to have dinner. Yeah. And then you have the people who are like, oh, thank you for your service. <laughs> and it's like, you know. It's somewhere in between. Well, yeah. More yeah. towards thank you for your service. But <laughs> it was it was more amusing than and, yeah. and more. It's kind of selfish. It was more for my psychic balm than anything. Right. Like, I mean. Uh, the whole spectacle of yeah, it. Yeah, you want, you want people who are heroes. Uh, look at the people who are doing, like, de-arresting or, like, people who are, you know, yelling at Ted Cruz to get him out of restaurants, right? Because Alex Jones doesn't really have power in the same way, right? The, the, Alex Jones can't ruin my life for telling him to go fuck himself. Yeah. But, you know, Ted Cruz, he can, he can ruin your life. He can, you know, bring terrorism charges on you for making fun of him and all that shit. So it's like... Yeah, it, not particularly heroic, but definitely interesting and definitely worth doing. <laughs> That's probably the way I'd put it. Nice. Now, how familiar, like, how long have you been Austin in Austin again? Um, I moved here in around May of 2017, so about two years, coming up on two years now. But you grew up in Houston, so you're... Mm-hmm. You're you were already kind of like familiar with Alex Jones to yeah. a oh, pretty yeah. extensive degree or what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've seen those videos of him doing like quote unquote investigative reporting. He's yeah, he made a weird pivot from being like a local reporter on like how weird and dumb the go- local government can be sometimes to being just this complete nut job. And you know, I guess that's part of the how information contagion works on the internet right yeah uh and how quickly and how easily conspiracies spread right yeah because i remember back uh during the bush years um he i mean he released the 9-11 the road to tyranny which is like the one alex jones film that i've seen but he was even in uh, richard linkletter did uh, maybe one or two i can't remember if he did both or not but it's like waking life and uh Fuck, I'm forgetting the other. Um, they were both in that same sort of um, this sort of specific anim- animation style, where it was quasi realistic. Uh, it was a scanner. Oh, it was a scanner darkly in Waking Life, and I can't remember which one Linkletter did, but Alex Jones is actually in both of them, and both of them, if I'm not mistaken, were filmed here in Austin. Oh, that's fantastic. And he has a cameo, at least in one of them, where he's like driving around in this car with a bullhorn, just yelling out his his bullshit. <laughs> Insane shit. Yeah, he's a, he is a character, let me tell you. Um, you know, 
if that's keeping Austin weird, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it's a uh, time to move on to a different definition of weird. Right. <laughs> Had you ever heard of? Uh, I'm was talking about this last night to uh, the mandatory OT guys, but were you ever familiar with the? Uh, we used to have a transvestite named Leslie. No, no, not Austin. at all. Oh, this this person was like an Austin like landmark almost would always be out on 6th Street, kind of like a homeless guy that would be like in a dress with no underwear on. There was kind of like the unofficial mascot of Austin, and if you would go like on 6th Street, get hammered, you could take a picture with Leslie. Um, this was kind of like for years and for like decades. Mm. Um, but then he passed away, I think, in the early to mid-2000s. So I was just kind of curious if you had, had ever, <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. never heard of that. That was, I guess, probably coincides with like the de- death of old Austin. Oh, yeah. In, a, in sort of a poetic sense, you know? Yeah, I guess that makes sense, you know? <laughs> I mean, America just doesn't have folk heroes anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, who, was the, who was the emperor of America who was in uh, San Francisco? What was his name? Um, but this like crazy guy who bet all of his money on like sugar futures and then lost all of his money in like the mid 1800s. And, uh, he declared, he obviously went insane from being homelessness because of, you know, how, how homelessness affects, you know, your brain. And, uh, he went insane and declared himself emperor of America. And, uh, he would walk around, he, like, people bought him all this finery and everything, and people would walk around and, like, salute him when he walked into bars, and <laughs> nice. he could always eat in San Francisco free, right, because of that. And, you know, you contrast that with San Francisco now, people would probably just, like, shoot him <laughs> if he tried to pull any of the shit that he did back then, uh, you know, American imagination and American, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, what do you call it? Uh, an admiration for the abnormal has definitely like kind of flattened, right? If you're not on the rails of this, uh, of what you're quote unquote supposed to do, uh, you get, you get churned out of society pretty quickly nowadays. Well, Paul, uh, you're also, so we mentioned this a little bit, but you're pretty active in the Austin DSA chapter. So tell me a little bit about, uh, what um how maybe you even your path to even joining the dsa and mm-hmm. a little bit about that and maybe you can sort of uh, lead us through kind of what you're doing now sure as well yeah so um i guess i've kind of always been like politically left-leaning right i mean how how do you emerge from from uh you know 2008 and the war in iraq how do you how do you emerge from that a right-winger i, I have no yeah, clue exactly but um you know, I always kind of considered myself a new dealer and I was always very discontent with the current Democratic Party, right? They, they're always talking about like reforming social security when uh, I very fundamentally believed that like, you know, we need to break up the banks, we need to break up all these monopolies, yada yada, we need a new new deal and all that stuff. And uh, eventually, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won in uh and I realized, holy shit, uh, there's actually a movement that is fighting for some of the things that I want, right? Um, originally, I was like, eh, I'm not sure if I disagree, if I agree with them 100%, but they definitely are talking about, like, you know, reforming our electoral system, doing all these, like, you know, massively expanding voter rights and all that stuff. Like, stuff that I actually saw is 
necessary to, you know, reform society to be more fair for people. And I was like, okay, cool. And then, you know, I kind of went down the socialist reading theory rabbit hole and uh, pretty much emerged a Marxist. Uh, so naturally that led to me getting very involved with the labor committee. And now I'm a co-chair there and we're doing, you know, all this kind of uh, organizing, you know, helping people unionize their workplaces and uh, going after, you know, going after some of the more uh, exploitative industries here in Austin, which are pretty much, pretty <laughs> much, yeah, pretty much everything. <laughs> but, you know, uh, retail jobs and stuff like that, we're working on, you know, we're working on getting like... Uh, Places we're working on getting places where if workers want to like need to talk through strategies for how to organize, uh, we can help them. We're going to be running more and more uh, secret this thing called Secrets of a Successful Organizer training. If you've heard of that, it's uh, this thing by Labor Notes that does like you know how to how to have the conversation with your coworkers about like hey you know there's probably a reason why nobody's gotten a raise around here in a year, right? Uh, and it's probably because of the boss, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, it's it's keeping me busy, uh, which is a lot of, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you get, I mean, everybody in DSA is, or everybody who's like, you know, really active in it is, they they pretty much believe in this project, right? They, they, they see as, they see this as pretty much the only way forward. And, you know, I'm pretty much up there with them. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Now, were you were you involved with, wasn't the DSA sort of a one of the main pushers behind getting the sick time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of that was, legislation uh, for at least the city of Austin, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sadly, that was after I had joined. But okay. uh but yeah, we're we're trying to you know fight back against you know the state the state legislature is trying to take it away from us now, so you know uh, we're trying to you know do as much pushback as we can, get people to you know call their congressmen about this or their state congressmen and their state senators about it. Uh, it really this this whole uh, if you know like SB fifteen right, uh, it's this like preemption bill that basically says. Um, cities have no right to pass anything that will improve working conditions for people. <laughs> so like cities won't be allowed to raise the minimum wage. Um, they won't be allowed to do paid sick, uh, you know, which allows people to, you know, have a cold and still get paid, <laughs> which is kind of mandatory uh, if you're surviving on a minimum wage. Right. Um, stuff like, uh, what else? Oh yeah. Uh, they're also, they also... A lot of people think that they accidental the Freedom Caucus accidentally sabotaged their bill by uh, putting this uh, anti-discrimination anti-anti-discrimination law in there. So, like, presumably they don't want they want to like preserve people's rights to like not hire uh, like trans trans people or something. I don't I don't really know what their angle with it with that is, but um, they've basically made a bill that's so extreme that it might be unconstitutional <laughs> but uh you know but this is this is at the state level correct mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, senate bill 15 senate bill 15. yeah everybody everybody who's trying to push that through is basically bought out by small business and coke brothers people 
which uh, that's one of the things that being in the labor movement has really made really crystallized to me. Um, people very frequently uh, weaponize small business owners, right, against their workers because everybody likes their local business, right? Yeah. And, and so it's like, oh, I don't want, to, you know... Uh, I don't want Lucy's fried chicken to go out of business. Yeah, exactly. I like to go there with my with my girlfriend on a date. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And get nobody. accosted by by fucking dirty commies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. That's a real problem. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, they can't pay their workers more. Otherwise, I can't get that sweet fried chicken and uh, and videos from my website. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that they're. Yeah, so they they definitely go and the the thing is is that this whole like organization of small business owners is all coke funded, you know, <laughs> which is the craziest thing, right? Because you think of the cokes as like this big business, uh, like what do you call it? Like a conglomerate, yeah, sort like, of yeah. huge. But yeah, I mean they've got their paws in a lot of different, mm-hmm. a lot of different baskets. We'll say yeah, and it really becomes clear that it's not so much about protecting like just their business it's about reinforcing and basically just quashing any kind of workers movement whatsoever right even at that level so Mm -hmm. it's like building a firewall against even at the mid mid level of uh a business or employment yeah 100 percent. and uh you know the thing that we come into conflict a lot the the organization really sponsoring this bill is something called the Austin Independent Business Alliance, who are just all all these people like uh, John Mackey from Whole Foods uh, and all these people. Yeah, they're they're not ostensibly liberal. Yeah, right? very quote unquote progressive businesses that you know are like, oh, we just don't have the money to give give our workers more. Meanwhile, you know, uh, one of the one of the bookstores that uh, Austin DSA helped one of the places that Austin DSA helped unionize recently uh, was uh, Book People, which is this local bookstore. And uh, they kept saying that we just don't have the money. And uh, what do you know? You do some research and their their investors are taking home, like if you have a 2% share or whatever, they're taking home 500K a year. And so it's like there's money to be had here. It's just being hoarded by the people at the top, which right. is, you know. I Surprise. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Crazy, crazy to think about, really. But uh, yeah, and I mean, those people, they they literally do no work, right? I mean, yeah. this is one of the things that really... Uh, it's rent-seeking, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. at its most crystal crystallized, I think. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's, that's one of the things that really made me, pushed me towards socialism, right? You really start seeing that yeah, it's not just the investment bankers that literally do no work. It's just it's not just, you know, uh the pharmaceutical companies. It's basically everybody in that kind of hierarchy that just completely sits around and makes money off of other people's labor and doesn't give them any. Yeah. You know, it's classic classic stuff. And uh, you know, it's once you start looking at the world in that way, it really it really becomes pretty obvious what what the what the path is, right? right. What, what that that standing by isn't really going to do anything, right? Because all this, all this faith in these politicians who are, you know, 
their their class interest is to not do anything, right? That's basically the Democratic Party in a nutshell. They're they're just in any sane country, they'd be a conservative party. <laughs> so just trying to trying hoping that they will do the right thing is useless. We need to force them to do the right thing. Yeah, right? And, absolutely. And so it's like where where do we have where do people like you and me, where do we have the most structural power? And, well, you know, it comes through our labor, right? We, I mean, uh, the government shutdown, right? Uh, TSA workers start just calling out sick. It shuts down an airport. And if they hadn't gotten the shutdown back on track, like the government back up and running, that strike wave would have gone across the country and shut down the entire FAA, right? So it's like, People need to realize just how much power we have just through working, yeah. right? And and just through existing in everyday society, we participate in politics every day, right? And it's it's really it's the mission of Marxists to make people realize that, right? That's that's that is class consciousness, right? Uh, so yeah, you know, uh, trying to teach people, working people, or not teach people, but making people realize that they can they can flex their muscles and you know take on the boss and not just take on the boss but take on politicians like in West Virginia and everything uh i you know maybe it's because i'm pretty new to this movement but it it feels like it feels like the the times they are a changing <laughs> what about uh so just a, the more substantive question before we get to theoretical would be um cuz i know texas is a right to work state yeah. Do you, I mean, being part of the labor committee, I'm sure you're kind of familiar with that. Could you give us like a uh, maybe a broad overview of what a right to work state kind of means and how that impacts organizing for for labor here sure. in Texas? Yeah. So, uh, well, right to work, right, is basically <laughs> just uh, you don't need to pay union dues if you work at a union shop, right? And that's yeah, pretty the much free the free rider problem. Yep. Sort of the. The long and short of it, it's basically like, I mean, if you view unions as like a state apparatus, right, kind of outside of outside of the state, um, it's basically allowing people to do, do tax evasion, right? I mean, we have unions benefit the whole and asking people to contribute to the whole is not an alien idea unless you're a libertarian and you think taxation is theft, right? So... Uh, this right to work thing does create a lot of problems when it comes to organizing, right? Because uh, if you view like the level of, if you view the level of engagement of everyone as like kind of a bullseye target, right? Where you have like the people who are all, who will be like shop stewards and like, you know, the people who will uh, actually submit demands to the boss when you're when you're back up for contract negotiation in the middle and then like you know people who will sign letters to the boss and then you know it keeps going out levels of engagement right at the very very outskirts is the people who don't even pay union dues at all right and you know it's it's really hard to get people from there to even just paying dues right and so it's basically a whole, it's adding a whole nother hurdle to organizing, right? And uh, we kind of run into that with, you know, card check, right? Card check's a big thing too, where um, 
if you if the Democrats had actually done what they'd said in 2008, right, like what Obama <laughs> ran on, he ran on card check, right? Um, and this is, you know, a classic example of the Democratic Party just not being able to realize what can keep them in power, right? And so card check is this thing where if 50% of people say sign a card saying, I, I want to unionize, they unionize like that. It's simple. Uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign recently, uh, recently unionized via card check because they just let them, right? But uh, otherwise, if your employer doesn't want you to unionize, which... I mean, <laughs> come on, all of them don't want yeah, you to unionize. Definitely. Um, they're going to make you go through an election process, which gives them another like week or two to, you know, say like, oh, this isn't this isn't really in your interests. Do you want the workplace to be conflict oriented? <laughs> as if as if one, that that's not even that that's not already the case in a workplace. And two, as if that's not a good thing. Right. I mean, class class conflict is good, folks. It's, you know, uh, if you're not. I mean, what really, really all of the anti-union propaganda, right, is what it boils down to is uh, a complete uh, a complete inversion of the power dynamics in the in the workplace. Right. Like, oh, yeah, the boss is just, you know, trying his best or, you know, uh, or not even that just like. Oh yeah, uh, you know, really, we're just smoothing things over when it's when it's not. It's there would be conflict if if the if there were any equality of power in the workplace, right? The only reason why there's no conflict in your workplace is because if you do anything wrong or if you do anything confrontational to the boss, you're going to get fired. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's exactly. the only re- that's the only reason there's no conflict in a lot of people's workplaces. Uh, and you know, unions allow you to fight back. That's what it is. Have you thought about, um, I'd actually been thinking about this on my own recently, since I do have a lot of experience in this sort of sector of the economy is sort of the, uh, and I think this is kind of a predominant industry that I think would be ripe for unionization is the sort of call center customer service sort of places. Oh Yeah. Have you thought? Have you given any thought, or is there like any connection or reach out to um, maybe that sector of of labor? Well, so um, you know, uh, I'm not going to disclose exactly where we are, but you know, uh, there are a lot of tech workers who really fall fall outside of the uh, umbrella of being an engineer, right? So all these people who do calls for you know. Uh, who do customer service stuff, you know, the, the types of people who, uh, you know, do for do moderation, who, oh, you yeah. know, get contracted oh, out and everything. Uh, those, I mean, these people have an incredibly exploitative uh, workplace and, you know, there's a lot of uh, mental strain that gets put on every single person that gets contracted out to. All right. And, uh, so really what we're trying to do is not so much we're we're really not at the position where we can like go strictly after places right but um uh you know like back in back in the day socialist movement socialist parties were able to like say hey we have a factory here that we want to unionize uh 
if you are unemployed right now, go work at this factory and try and unionize it and, you know, get people on board with unionizing. Um, sadly, we're not, you know, Austin DSA isn't, isn't right. that. Um, but there is, we're trying to basically say to workers like, hey, if you want, really want to organize your workplace and you're serious about this and like you want to be given a task to do like once a week and then meet back with us and and talk with other workers about how their experience trying to do that or trying to have like two conversations with their coworkers or something. Um, we're trying to basically like make these little circles where we can, you know, get people together and, uh, you know, really kind of like a work worker center sort of, uh, but that's, that's like one of the bigger initiatives that we have as, as, as the labor committee yeah. along with, you know, just getting other people, getting, you know, speakers and everything, you know, doing, doing some real organizing instead of activism. Yeah. It's I mean, I, I've even been thinking about this too, because I feel like this is definitely a sector that is the alienation factor is so extremely high and the mental toll that it takes to, uh, I mean, I have a number of friends that deal with this stuff. It's just, and I've done it myself and it's fucking can be hellish to like, if you're like any kind of, you know, sensitive individual <laughs> yeah, getting shit on by like random people is just so terrible. And you throw kind of shitty working conditions on top of that stress, and it's just, it's fucking terrible. It's overwhelming. Yeah, yeah it can really, I mean, that's that's a lot of jobs nowadays, right? It's all about grinding you down and just making making it feel like there is no option, right? Uh, if uh, my my recommendation to anyone in that industry is, you know, if you, if you want to try and organize, you're the person who can do that, right? Uh and uh, it's it's not even organizing doesn't even have to be like unionization uh, as much as as much as that's like the end goal for basically everyone. Um, it could be anything as small as like, uh, you know, submitting a letter to your boss being like, hey, we need like either more people here or fewer hours like we're losing our minds here. Uh, any kind of action is like. It's like uh, how you escalate, right? I mean, people aren't going to be brave enough to unionize right away, yeah. right? And so it's like one of those things where you really just need to uh, start having conversations with people or like, uh, or just getting together outside of work and being like, hey, uh, yeah, my bills suck. Do your bills suck too? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just those things where, uh, and this is where, uh, uh, secrets of a successful organizer really comes in. It's really helpful to be able to like say, "Oh, this is how I really have this conversation about how much shit yeah, sucks." Because I, I think that's <laughs> a big part of it is like people don't people aren't even aware of how they can even like they're so atomized by capitalism that they don't realize even just the fact that it's even a possibility to like the thought doesn't even enter their mind to band together and co sort of create some type of, at least like you're saying, it'll, at the very least write your boss a letter, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Some type of, um, I don't know, organized group activity rather than just being out there by yourself and feeling alienated and isolated. Mm. No joke from a lot of people I hear, uh, when I talk about how I'm in the labor movement, uh, 
if you talk to people who aren't, you know, don't have the same amount of brainworms that we do, um, very frequently they will say, oh my God, I didn't realize unions were legal in Texas. And it's like, we have a long way to go if a lot of people are saying that, right? (laughs) There's, there's a lot to do. And there's a huge, I mean, I think in Texas period, there's like an anti, huge anti-union sentiment. The right to work shit doesn't help. And even that's funny, like even the like, language that is used around this type of shit Um, Mm -hmm. and it's not just right to work i mean patriot act i mean you see that kind of shit fly everywhere um that gives these like nominal (laughs) things oh you don't want to vote against the right to work act oh that that sounds like a that sounds good like i should support that you know but it's kind of really uh i don't know what the it's like fucking sadistic (laughs) yeah the right wing is very good at like using use yeah they're very good at like co-opting language from the left right that's that's a that's a time-honored strategy of the right right i mean even with uh you know the syncreticism of of the nazi party right i mean that's that's how they got the voters by, by saying hey uh we're we're pro worker wink wink <laughs> you know and also we should kill all the jews and so it's like it's like you really need to be careful about how you frame things right and and when you know when they use like the i mean very frequently you kind of run into this uh this uh block like a stumbling block with people where their idea of liberty has completely perverted any attempt to actually like you know experience real liberation right i mean you get a lot of people who are like well why don't why don't you just go work somewhere else? <laughs> and it's like, that is a very um, bourgeois like idea of how the workplace and how the, that, how the market for yeah. labor even works. Right. I mean, changing jobs is a huge fucking problem, right? I mean, you need to change your schedule. You need to change how, I mean, where you're going. And it, even if you're like at the t- upper end or, you know, of the sort of labor force or in demand, you know, whatever network engineer, uh, you know, developers, etc. Like even at that level, it's still no joke to find another job. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of work, and uh, like let you're, me tell you. <laughs> you're already work. It's like you're already working at one job, and then you've got to apply, and then you've got to figure out a way to, you know, coyly sneak out to do an interview. How the hell are you going to do that? Yeah, because, there's, there's a, yeah, even uh, then. They don't give, uh, you know, most companies don't interview on the weekends, yeah. of course. So it's like the structural barriers are so fucking high, even if you are sort of an in demand sort of uh, at that sort of scale of labor rather than just, you know, like a service industry worker or something like that, where there's probably like, yeah, you can probably more easily integrate into a different retail store. But even at that point, it's kind of tough to get away and, yeah and even then yeah and like you said even then it's like you don't like you don't know i mean there's a lot of uncertainty to it right i mean you don't know how shitty your boss is going to be at the next time place you don't know how (laughs) shitty the customers are going to be at this next place and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh like uh there's a lot of rationality between having in behind having inertia at the job you have right it's like change is is uh is unpredictable and for a lot of people who you know have minimum wage jobs or like you know 15 dollar an hour jobs it's like you you don't have money to just you know 
look for a job for another month. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> it's, right. it's preposterous. And so this idea that the really what the right wing really loves to traffic in, right, is this idea of of uh, the the mutual contract, right? The mutual contract that everybody has with their employer and uh, just completely flattening any kind of power dynamic whatsoever, right? Into this completely naive uh, conceptualization of the, the labor market such as it is. Right. Where, you know, I mean, if if they don't hire you, that's no skin off you their back, right? But you need to work to live. Yeah, there's like there's an endless supply, like labor of labor, there's not an endless supply of, of good jobs or, yeah. you know, quote unquote, or, good jobs. Yeah, or, we're throwing that term around very, very, very loosely. Yeah. And I mean, once again, it's every, every job has something about it that sucks. Right. Right. And so sure. you, you don't, there's no guarantee that moving up is moving up. True. Right. And yeah, so it's, right. it's really, it's really hard. Like, once again, this idea that, oh, why don't you just go find a different job is completely ridiculous. You're you're better off, you know, organizing against your boss. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, anybody that says go get another job should be punched in the fucking face. Yeah. I, ha- I hate I just hate that kind of boot licking attitude. Like, fuck. Like. I just hate it. Yeah. It's it's it pisses me off. Yeah. There is a lot of. There's a I mean, once again, there's been a very long project towards, you know, eroding every single part of the new deal in favor of quote unquote liberty. Like what, what is, what is freedom to these people, right? They're, they have a com- freedom to them basically means just lowering regulations. So rich people can do whatever the fuck they want for the rest of their lives. And, you know, uh, meanwhile, we, people in the working class just have to be like tied down to one job, like a feudal peasant. Uh, it's, it's 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 hard combating that the ideology of that you know but there's there's one way to do it and uh, class struggle that's the way to do it i always think too if you're and i think this to me this is always a good example and way to sort of crystallize this whole asymmetrical relationship between labor and uh and capital is that even like fucking you know like salary caps in, in the nba or nfl it's like LeBron James, probably like a point zero 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 one percent in terms of like nobody can do what that literally nobody else on the planet, maybe one other person out of seven billion people can do what this guy does. And he can't even get fair market value for his labor. Yeah, that's so a huge when you thing. like extrapolate that to like the average American, I mean, come on, come yeah. on. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And I mean, we see it in uh we see it in the MLB right now, especially, right? Because the MLB has definitely um, turned into this weird neoliberal project almost. Oh, yeah. I, I don't I don't I, know if you're like... I'm assuming you're... Because I saw... Uh, are you thinking... Because I saw yesterday, I think, Eve, a, p- a post somewhere that was saying these front offices had... Like they handed out an award for who was able to keep their salary down the oh, lowest yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that? Is that what you're kind of... Well, yeah. For? No, there's a... Well, what it is is that there's... Uh, first of all, there's an obsession with data, right? In in uh, baseball, we love, we love our stats. But uh, there's also this uh, extreme focus on getting, the, getting your players the cheapest, right? And uh, baseball, at this point, the owners of baseball have completely 
it's basically it's basically blatantly obvious that they are colluding to keep people out of the labor market. Uh, so people like Dallas Keuchel, he's not even employed right now. <laughs> uh, the Astros let him go and nobody has signed him. Uh, Bryce Harper didn't get even close to fair market value for his stuff. And uh, Mike Trout just signed an extension for about the same amount of money, even though Mike Trout's like the second coming of Mickey Mantle. Right. <laughs> so it's like, it's it's really obvious just how, uh, yeah, like you said, even at the upper echelons of society, if you are trading your labor for money, that does not afford you the same liberty that it affords being the person who's hiring you, right? And that's why players and that's why sports players have unions, man. They have unions right. for that reason. <laughs> they go on strike. Uh, even though, even though, you know, people take, people perversely take ownership side very yeah, frequently. It's, that's how fucked American culture is. It's like, I don't give a fuck. I support the working class period, especially when it comes to sports. Yeah. Because I mean, the, what are the, what is ownership really doing? Like, what are they, they don't, most of them aren't paying for the stadiums. Yeah. You know, it's, they have some kind of fucking bullshit deal that they can slide out of and go to another city. Yeah, it's really they hard want to <laughs> and really leave everybody else, the taxpayers holding the bag. It's another just it's a fucking rent seeking operation mm-hmm. that they can just hold on to and it accrues value and then they can sell it for massive profits after like five or ten years. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, even even the bad teams, man, they don't. They they make you make plenty of money off of that. Like when the Marlins got sold, they were basically this catastrophic failure of a baseball team for the longest time. And uh, you know now they're and they got sold to Derek Jeter and a few other investors for and that guy basically washed his hands of it and walked away with a couple you know hundred million dollars or something for that for his trouble of uh, basically eviscerating the team, trading right. away all the good players, and then... All their <laughs> hard work, all their hard work, they were re- rewarded for by figuring yeah. out how to just, like, fucking gut this team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's... it's Yeah, and baseball is probably the, the biggest example of that, right? And there's also a lot of... Uh, um, baseball is interesting because it has uh, one of the most clearly defined underclasses of any sport. Right with the with the minor leagues. Oh, okay. and those yeah, guys basically true. make about the same money that I did when I was a software engineer, <laughs> or probably less probably for a less. lot of them. Yeah, for a lot of them, a, a lot yeah, less. Yeah, they're making like thirty thousand dollars a yeah. year and shit for a chance at what? <laughs> at uh, maybe making it to the big leagues and getting a uh, hundred thousand dollars before you know you your body just gives out on you. Uh, yeah, and so it's 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 one of the most. Uh, it's one of the most friendly sports to like a, a like a class based like analysis of why the things are the way they are, and uh, it's been interesting on a leftist Twitter. There are a lot of baseball fans, and uh, I'm starting to kind of draw the lines between there. It's like, oh, this kind of starts to make sense when you think about it. <laughs> really interesting too, given the labor history of MLB, because I think. Free agency wasn't even a thing until like the seventies, like the seventies with yeah. Kurt Flood and that whole mm-hmm. that whole deal. Yeah, you were pretty much bound to the land, right? We we're talking about feudalism. The, the, the before free agency, that was pretty much as as feudal as it gets, right? You have no agency whatsoever. Uh, yeah, uh, weird times, weird times for sure. 
but uh, you were we were talking about earlier a little bit about uh, something that I'm kind of ignorant at, at in terms of like a little bit of history of like the sure. social democracy and sure um, you were mentioning you have you've been reading up on this a lot. Is this something that had this is something you were interested in prior to joining DSA though, right? Um, or was has this been spurred since? It was really uh, well for the longest time. I was mostly just interested in like how how the European part like uh, parliaments really formed, right? I was very interested as as uh, someone who was a very self avowed liberal in like the revolutions of eighteen forty eight and like the French Revolution. I was like really interested in that. Uh, but now that I kind of got into like the socialist movement, it it really started to make sense to start very uh very much focusing on like what what the what the socialist movement in Europe really looked like at 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 that time and what you know the communist league and all those people and like you know i mean when, if you start reading enough marx you start realizing that most of his time was spent uh dunking on other leftists and uh writing long dissertations about how all these utopian people didn't have any real analysis and didn't have any real plans like right? coming coming at my boy kropotkin oh yeah Ooh, marx really <laughs> yeah he he roasted and, kropotkin several my, times my other my other boy max sterner oh sterner yeah <laughs> the the original reply guy sterner <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's the thing. All all leftist writers were just posters, right? I mean, they they couldn't. It's a a long. It's a rich, long and rich tradition. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, you know. I mean, which is funny. Like, is it giving? Given that's essentially how you and I, uh, yeah, kind of got linked up uh, through uh, through shit posting. (laughs) Yep, yep. Uh, Good old good old leftist Twitter always always keeping things fresh. Something good can actually come from social media. Yeah, and see, well, man, that's there's what I, a there's a dialectic there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thesis and antithesis, and see, that's the <laughs> thing. I, I really, what really bothers me about the liberal conception of how uh, the internet and how uh, social media in general works is it's incredible. It, like like all liberal things, it's incredibly naive and completely, uh, completely ignorant of the power dynamics in the in the actual world, right? Uh, so, you know, all these liberals who are saying, oh, why is there such a right-wing propaganda machine on the internet? Well, that's because right-wingers are trying to turn the internet into propaganda, right? They are trying to do that. And so this liberal uh, conception of, like, if we just, uh, you know, make everybody have their face on on their posts, then... The marketplace of ideas will we'll work it. out, it'll sort itself out, and we'll go back to progress instead of, like, pseudo-fascism. And it's ridiculous. It's this completely uh, cowardly idea, uh, cowardly approach to uh, how how social movements are built, right? You should... Liberals are so afraid of propaganda that they've lost the ability to call it out when it's propaganda, right? Fox News is a propaganda tool of the right wing, right? That that should be obvious, and you should be able to say, like, we should probably dismantle them or go after them in any way, shape, or form. But they're so obsessed with this um, incredibly bourgeois right uh, idea of uh, freedom of speech that they, they scare themselves into inaction, right? And so... Social media is good for leftist organizing, 
if you do the work of organizing, right? You need to put in work. And so this idea, but man, I always get very frustrated with people who just think if only we gave Kansas internet, <laughs> they'd stop being Republican. And it's like, that's ridiculous, right? Because working class people know when they're getting fucked over, right? It's not because they're not re- voting Republican because they because they just haven't read enough. They're voting Republican because the Democrats have fucking abandoned them, right? Uh, I think it was in Missouri. Uh, they, through a ballot measure, repealed right to work. Missouri, <laughs> that is a right, that is a red state, right? And so this idea that working class people just, oh, don't know what's good for them is completely preposterous and extremely indicative of, of uh, you know, when people talk about liberals being condescending, there, there's your example right there. People know how to help themselves. It's just they've abandoned all, all, uh, all pretenses of being, you know, uh, a working class party. They're the per- the Democrats are the professional managerial class, right? That's it. They're people who work in HR and call your boss whenever you make a bad post, right? <laughs> that that's the type of people who are in charge of the Democratic Party. I don't blame people in red states for fucking hating them. <laughs> they're they're the worst kind of people on the planet, and so when. When all these right-wingers go like, oh, well, uh, you know, the immigrants are stealing your jobs. And and uh, the Democrats just go, everything's fine. It's going great. You know, I mean, I don't fucking blame people for saying, well, at least these people recognize the fucking problem. Right? Or that they're not the problem, that there is a problem. Right? And so that's why if we start building like an actual socialist movement in this country, we can start fixing that. Right? Because we know who's screwing people over. It's, you know, the bankers. It's the people who uh, run the pharmaceutical companies. It's, you know, it's the ruling class of America. And that's that's it. That's cut and dry. And, you know, with, with how well socialism has done in the Midwest, uh, you know, uh, the, the commonly stated fact is that Oklahoma was the was the state legislature with the most socialists in it before the first red scare uh agrarian socialism can work and has worked in america for so long but uh but because socialism uh is obviously against the class interests of the people who run the democratic party we you know it's it's a that's a non-starter for them uh but yeah it's incredibly frustrating to just watch this shit happen over and over again. But yeah, I kind of, I kind of drug you away from. Kinda, <laughs> yeah, kinda, my bad. <laughs> I know it's my bad. I, I, I got into the shit posting thing, which is, yeah, yeah, is yeah. easy to do. But you mm-hmm. were gonna, get, gonna tell us a little bit about the history of socialism in Europe. A little yeah, bit. sure. Fill me so, in. Yeah. Okay. So where it really starts is there were all these. Uh, it really started kind of with a Christian tradition, right? Um, there were a bunch of utopian socialists who were basically do-gooders, right? They were people who were like, who saw the ravages that, you know, wage labor and everything has, has had wrought. And like, you know, I mean, when feudalism fell away and capitalism uh, was supposed to be this liberatory force, 
Um, you know, it turned out that it didn't work, right? Obviously, uh, in hindsight, but, uh, there were a lot of people who were socialists, uh, who were just like, we recognize that this is bad, right? And so kind of drawing from that, there were a few revolutionary organizations that really like started saying like, yeah, we need to get the people in power, out of power, and we need to like, you know, uh, start really, um, start really, you know, thinking about how to redistribute the wealth that society is creating in a more just way, right? And that leads to things like uh, Proudhon, right, uh, in France, and uh, the thing that Marx and Engels famously joined called the League of the Just, right? And so eventually, um, through all these, you know, all these arguments in, in the socialist movement through, through posting, uh, just a <laughs> bunch of, you know, a bunch of news, news pamphlet people just yelling at one another, um, Marx comes to this, uh, you know, the League of the Just, and uh, him and Engels kind of perform a soft coup, essentially, in the League of the Just, and rebrand it, right? Their phrase was, for the longest time was, uh, all men are brothers, right? Um, and so that was the, the problem that Marx had with that was that, uh, capitalists are not our brothers, right? Really? Like, uh, are you going to, are you going to really say that the person who is intentionally immiserating, you know, every single person under their employ, are you really going to say that he's his brother and that he's going to like, you know, uh, just give up his power voluntarily? No, of course not. And so that's when Marx and Engels uh, performed the soft coup and turned the League of the Just into the Communist International, uh, the Communist League, and like started holding, hosting the Communist International with the new phrase of workers of the world unite. Right. So are, are you saying that you and I should lead a soft coup of the DSA and start <laughs> fucking <laughs> a radical workers' movement? Yeah, uh, I, I said nothing of well, the sort. Uh, NSA, please. Uh, we'll, ocu- <laughs> we'll occupy the state capital and fucking hold, uh, what's his name, for ransom, yeah, the fucking um, governor. Uh, parody law. Greg, um, Greg Abbott. Uh, I have no association with any revolutionary <laughs> socialist organization. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so what really, and so this was basically right on the, right on the ferment of 1848, right? This massive revolution uh, that basically tore down all the, all the monarchies of Europe. And, uh, it was there when, uh, they, that they, that the communists and the liberals, the political class, right? That had really, was pushing for liberal reforms, whereas the, you know, uh, it was political revolution versus social revolution, right? That famous dichotomy um, that was famously uh, encapsulated by the Sans-Culottes and uh, the Jacobins, right, back in, back in France. Um, 1848 really drew the battle lines, right, between liberals and communists because it was like, uh, obviously, these people do not want us to have redistributive policies, right? They just want some political reforms. They want, they want the merchants to be able to say the merchants and the land and like the petty aristocrats, uh, the lawyers and everything to have a say in government. That's basically what the liberals back in 1848 wanted. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the communist mobs were just like, we, we need bread. Right. Uh, and so a famous, a famous example of that was, uh, when 
Engels was on the battle lines of uh, of something in Germany, uh, he put up the red flag for the Communist International, and uh, and that kind of alienated him and his his little army from the rest of the liberal revolutionaries because they were kind of freaked out. <laughs> and so, uh, great example of how how that really you know coalesced. Uh, or the battle lines were drawn between socialists and uh, liberals. Um, and then eventually they transferred into this idea of the second international, which was we really need to take state power and like expand the welfare state and everything. And so that's where you get into people like Kautsky, Bernstein, uh, all these people who, you know, um, are ostensibly Marxists. Um, you can ask uh, <laughs> a few people about whether or not they are, are or not. Um, and so they were basically like, if because it was this Marxist idea of through universal suffrage, really capital doesn't have a chance, right? Which was which uh, was the idea, <laughs> right? But of course. Uh, yeah. That that did not in practice. Happen. That clearly yeah, in that. practice, it it really didn't work all that well. Um, but so you know, the German Social Democrats, uh, the SPD, were probably the most um, the most robust of any social democratic party um, back then. Uh, the you know the Labour Party in the UK was doing pretty well, but uh, really the Social Democratic Party in Germany started to basically create a state within a state, right? They they would take care of you. They would have, you know, if you were homeless, they would have soup kitchens for you. They would have they would have their own bars that they ran so you you could own you you would just, you know, go talk about politics with the SPD people and that's it, right? And so they really started to create this weird apparatus outside of it, uh, which uh if you if you if you think of like something that is capable of smashing the state, right? That's that's really what you're talking about. You need you need a state apparatus that isn't the state, right? And that's and really dual, dual power, right? Um, that's different. That's different. Okay. <laughs> uh, dual power is this specific political goal that Lenin and the and the Bolsheviks had uh, during the Russian Revolution, which was uh, the the Soviets, right? Were this basically basically like workers' councils. And then, uh, and then you had the the Duma, which were the political people. And so, dual power was the idea that uh, that the Soviets and and the Duma could run politics. Like the Duma would do like national stuff, and like the Soviets would be like, "No, this is Petrograd. What we say goes." And that's that's another great example. Well, that is a good example of like an, a working body outside of the state that is capable of smashing it, right? And that's. That's really, man, uh, if you're talking about, you know, uh, the good things and bad things about the Russian Revolution, uh, you know, all power to the Soviets really became a battle cry uh, once once the Duma had completely fallen to shit. Um, but yeah, when you're talking about, like, European, like, second international kind of thing, uh, it's really easy to see where they went wrong, right? Because... As soon as the lead up to World War One happened, everybody completely abandoned internationalism completely, and it's uh, we completely international. Okay, uh, yeah, they abandoned. They basically threw out internationalism, and they were like, "Oh, we are." The Germans uh, frequently told themselves that they were combating uh, 
a creeping Tsarism, right? Uh, and this is something that you can see in America a lot, right? When we talk about, uh, you know, oh, we're just defending ourselves from like Russia or whatever in in the re- in the Middle East because they're asserting control over Assad or you know or or you know especially with Iran, right? Probably the most blatant example of that. Where, where it's basically, we just, you know, uh, make out like they're the bad guys and uh, we're acting in self-defense. And that's exactly what the, what the Second International fell into. And it's this really tragic moment, right? Because uh, you, had, you, had, uh, state, you had states that were basically all controlled by communists or social democrats, right? And, and if they had said to themselves, you know, this this war is only going to lead to ruin. Uh, we should immediately revolt against this, right? You're talking about a completely different Europe. You're talking about a completely different world. And you're talking about, you know, maybe something that doesn't create Nazi Germany. Right. Right. You're talking about something that, you know, the aristocracy has managed to sell this war that people say, no, we don't want it. And, uh, it's a really, it's like World War One goes down as far as like the German left. Uh, World War One and 1919 being crushed by the Spartacist revolt, getting crushed by uh, by the SPD themselves, goes down as like the the premier tragedies of European socialism, right? Because it's just it. History could have been different. Yeah, because if I'm not mistaken, even Lenin thought that Germany, the revolution would happen in Germany, did not anticipate it happening mm-hmm. in Russia. Lenin himself, man, interesting character. Uh, I've I've been I've been fascinated by him even before I was a socialist uh, because his life was fucking nuts, right? I mean, uh, you're talking about a guy who. Uh, his brother tried to assassinate the Tsar, and he basically spent an entire like his life on the lamb from the secret police of Russia. But uh, he he really when when he heard that the Social Democratic Party had voted to go to war, he thought that that was German propaganda. He was like, "There's no way that they are this stupid, right? That this is this is clearly not." <laughs> not the socialists aren't capable of declaring war on each other that's ridiculous and uh once he finally learned that it wasn't propaganda he kind of went into this like weird depressive state where it was like what what use is any of this no like nobody meant any nobody meant it right uh, all these people who who uh, started denouncing the Russians as like worthless slobs were all social democrats. They were all people who were like, "Oh, the absolutism of the Tsar is coming down to crush Germany." It's like this. It's it's it was, and so I mean, Lenin was one of the first people to identify this as the tragedy of the 20th century, and you know, uh, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, came out of that, <laughs> and uh, he. He was he was right about it, man. I mean, you're talking about. I mean, if you're trying to draw analogisms, right? That's that's their Iraq War. That's like the Ur moment for all this nascent fascism that we're seeing, and it's the nascent it's the Ur moment for their nascent fascism, right? Uh, it's you know, you know, you 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 look at. 
periods in history where things could have gone different, and that's definitely a watershed. Right? Yeah. And I wonder, thinking back, because, you know, probably have about over a decade on you, uh, just thinking back to, like, would, and uh, I don't know, would there have been any difference if Gore had won the presidency over Bush in hmm. 2000? I mean, yeah, that's you kind of, I lean towards, like, maybe i don't know you know it's it's a that's a difficult question to ask for sure i don't know that necessarily that was going to be a big enough break from well i mean really he was coming after clinton so i mean clinton was in rwanda kosovo blah 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 so i you know bosnia exactly so it's hard to say but oh man 2004 the whole run-up to iraq that was definitely a moment that Mm -hmm. I mean, still to this day, drives me fucking absolutely batshit crazy and just makes... Uh, it's yeah. so terrible. And then to hear people like, uh, the other day, the it was like the 15th anniversary, I think, of the invasion of Iraq. Mm-hmm. And like Ari Fleischer comes out and is like, oh, this was all, this was all just a, uh, an intelligence mistake. And I was like, oh, yes, it was an intelligence mistake, all right? Yeah. I mean, a fucking... Baby in a crib could have told you that Iraq mm-hmm. was going to be a total fucking disaster, <laughs> period, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and I told, I remember, like, I argued so, like, it, I just felt so powerless watching the sort of the, everyone get swept up in this stupid bullshit idea of of invading Iraq after 9-11. It was just mm-hmm. complete fucking insanity. And, you know, we see it with Venezuela today, you know? I mean, people... People still buy the idea that, like, you know, Guaido is, like, some not, like, some legitimate, like, force. And it's like, no, of course not, because this is... Or that our know. interests are, that our interests are purely, like, uh, the people of Venezuela rather yeah. than this, like, imperialist, even though it's become even more, like, they don't even try to hide that as much. It's like, they're saying... They've got a lot of oil money. Bolton's like, <laughs> oh, we sure would like to open up those oil markets... Yeah. To U.S. companies. Yeah, how like, blatant do they need to be, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. And I think uh, I think the powerlessness is definitely something that, you know, uh, y- is why we've kind of gotten here. Oh, right? absolutely. Uh, you know, without, without a militant left wing, it's really hard. And without, you know, the structural power to really say, uh, sorry, uh, we have the people's veto of like general strike or like, you know, or even just like shutting down an airport. Right. That's, that's not something that we've had until like moderately recently. And even then, right. Yeah. I mean, mean, it took them what two weeks to shut down an airport because they weren't getting paid. They were volunteering. (laughs) I mean, DSA's national membership, even is it like, like what fifty five thousand or fifty five? I thought it was like a, closer to a hundred, but Maybe. damn, <laughs> yeah. Even We're at, dropping the bucket, even right. at a hundred thousand. I mean, that's just a tiny, tiny fraction, right? Not then, even close. And to, then DSA is not even obviously the most radical <laughs> organization. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I mean, it's also that like you know we're not, going but it's not to, a party, yeah, either, too, yeah. So, which is <clears throat> very much something that is uh, the American political system's fault. I would say, yeah, um, I would say that DSA, if we had you know people in in Congress more than than you could consider us an actual party, right? Because we do have membership, we do pay dues and everything, but there's. It's, yeah, it's basically just a movement, right? 
Um, there's not, yeah, there's no like real, people are still even trying to figure out what the real structure of right. DSA should look like. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're still kind of groping our way through that. Right. And especially now that like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, is DSA, uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib is also DSA. Um, it's kind of, we've kind of gotten outsized political power compared to what the, what DSA's size is. Yeah. Right. Relatively. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're definitely in a weird place right now, which is why, uh, this upcoming national convention should be interesting. It's being hosted in Atlanta. Uh, I don't really know what's going on there. <laughs> I try to avoid being in leadership as much as possible. Uh, being on a committee is pretty easy. You know, we just, we're just a working body, right? I don't, I'm not really, uh, uh, one of the things that I learned from college being, uh, being you know in in a fraternity and being you know uh, in the leadership of that is oh, that God, yeah. i never <laughs> i never want to be in the position where people can yell at me for stuff that i can't really control yeah, ever again right <laughs> absolutely this is like uh so yeah uh, that's that's a big line from me like stop screaming at me to be in leadership i will never be in leadership <laughs> show yourselves coward <laughs> yeah um i don't know this comes to mind as well talking just rehashing this whole like i guess the 21st century history of america and how that impacted me specifically in that so yeah it's like you had 9-11 then you had 2003 invasion of iraq and then 2008 financial collapse and we had um you know i was in i was Shit, I was still probably, I can't remember if I was an under, I think I was was a grad student at the time. And fucking like Obama came and spoke at Texas State and we were like there at fucking Sewell Park, like right in like the heart of campus. And it was like a, a huge, like you, every like huge fucking crowd. Um, and he gave a speech and, you know, there was so much optimism at that time coming out of the whole Bush administration and how fucking just terrible that was. And sort of the, it felt like maybe there was, some promise there and then to see that whole thing just dematerialize so quickly was really devastating for me i think politically and i couldn't i withdrew pretty much even like i didn't even end up because i voted for obama in the democratic um not the caucus but where the primary here in texas and then I didn't even vote for him in the uh, general. <laughs> I actually wrote it. I wrote in Ron Paul. Ooh. And the reason I did that is because, like, up to, even towards, like, the end of the campaign, I don't know if you know about or remember, like, the FISA courts and shit. Oh, like yeah. That, the FISA warrants. Mm-hmm. Yep. I Anyways, he had, he had, like, even before he got elected, started kind of, like, backtracking on FISA. And I was like... Eh, this dude is, he's full of shit. I i don't know. I have a feeling he's full of shit. So I decided not to even vote for him in the general. And then I didn't even vote at all, period, in 2012. I was like, by that point, I was like, fuck it. Politics is hopeless. I'm just going to fucking divorce myself from this shit. And it wasn't until like 2016 leading up to the to the election, like maybe like a month before the election. I wasn't even going to vote then. <laughs> but then I wound up voting, of course, for fucking Hillary. What? Yeah. What else were they gonna do? Yeah, I mean, what? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's just a <laughs> uh, a moral obligation. Uh, but you know, I was I was pretty politically disengaged. I frankly did not vote. Uh, I was in. I was like 
that was back when I was very uh, nihilistic about elections. And I was like, oh, I'm in Texas. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not going exactly. to, I'm not going to vote. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, I started, what really got me back into it was the idea that we can, we, there are people trying to build a better world, right? Uh, you know, you can have disagreements on whether or not, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, you know, Tlaib or Omar are like good or bad, but, uh, these Com- are these compared are, to the, like the status quo discourse. Yeah. Fucking a, they're any yeah. miles better than anything mm-hmm. anyone else. And see, that's that's the thing, right? I mean, this is what happens when you elect people with actual principles, right? And 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 a history of activism in in their career, right? Uh, uh, Ocasio Cortez was a Sunrise Movement protester, right? Uh, Tlaib, uh, immigrants' rights protester. These are these are people who who have been on the front lines of of movements, right? As opposed to these people who just come from a from like Harvard Law School and they're just like I can talk pretty and there's a lot of uh, negative mobilization towards the Republicans, right? Which is what you see with uh, people like Pete Mayor Pete, uh, Buttigieg. What I don't I don't know how to pronounce his name, but uh, him Beto people like that uh, they. They haven't done anything really political in their lives other than run for office, yeah. right? And that's why that's why they're they're not beholden to anybody, right? There's no movement behind them, yeah. And there's no uh, there's no push and pull, right? right? Which is why which is why it's very important to be building movement, right? That's what Obama failed. That's I think where Obama failed, right? Because he was so he was so like they they got him elected. And basically, all that popular support and mobilization just vanished into the into the ether. And then, what do you know? In 2010, they lose the both houses, and and they just get curb stomped by this reactionary wing, who was able to mobilize a bunch of people by saying, by basically saying, "Hey, there's a black guy in, in office. We should stop that." Wink, wink. Yeah, yeah that's basically. I mean, that's basically what the Republican strategy was for his entire career, for his entire term in office. Right? I mean, it was like, "Hey, there's a black guy in office. We need to stop that." Period. And and so, it, it's really shocking to me that people still treat the. Uh, Treat the Republican Party as good faith actors in any way, shape, or oh, form. Yeah. It's it's it boggles the mind truly. Like there is not one single person in there who hasn't run a race baiting ad during their campaign, <laughs> right? Like they're they're all racists. They're all, or at least they're at the at the most charitable. Or at, they least, are. at the very <laughs> least, they enable or right. don't. They wouldn't call it out, you know. At the well, at the very least, they rely on racism to get them in office, right? <laughs> so, I mean, uh, what's the uh, what's the functional difference between being a racist and relying on racists to get you elected? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? right. So, yeah, uh, the the idea that the Republican Party can be bargained with or or uh, can is full of good people is ridiculous, and and it's really nice to see. People who are unwilling to compromise with these, you know, uh, reactionaries in the house. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I was talking to you last night doing the podcast with the mandatory OT guys, and they're trying to do some, you know, kind of grassroots organizing. They're in the ID, IWW. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of their Hell advice yeah. was just like, hey, just 
talk to your talk to your neighbors like say mm-hmm. hi don't be fucking isolated and i mean i think that's something i'm guilty of too is just being like you know earbuds in you know i mean that's sort of the capitalist alienation yeah drive is to just kind of like be siloed off but i mean i think that ultimately regardless i i mean i'm pretty pessimistic about mm. our future and the ability to build <laughs> class consciousness how or could you not be <laughs> have, have any kind of meaningful revolution that's not some kind of reactionary fascist shit but it's important i think to at the very least at the community level try and organize and build mm-hmm. build that sense of community and teach people skills and rely on one another i mean that's that's the only way we can survive yeah what's coming you know yeah because there's going i mean you know climate collapse is coming and i mean look at look at what's happening in the in the in the house right now we can't even get people to sign on to the paris climate accords which is basically just a uh, an eight-year-old writing down his wish list for santa right. right that's that's like ridiculous that we can't even get that to happen yeah. and so it's you know once again relying on this political class to do anything is completely ludicrous right they they are all going to be in the fucking biodome <laughs> when when the seas start, you know, drowning New Orleans and Houston. When Florida, yeah. when it starts eating Florida, it's already happening in Bengal, right? Bengal, uh, they they at this point, it's basically the the Bay of Bengal is like uninhabitable because every single typhoon season, millions of people get displaced from their house from their homes and. Climate catastrophe is already here. It's just not here for white people. Yeah. <laughs> right? For and sure. so, like, I mean, in South Africa, right, they're, they're, they just recently broke a drought that almost brought the country to its knees, right? This, these are real things that are happening to people. And so, yeah, when it comes, when it comes to uh, approaching climate catastrophe, uh, if you ask me, it's not even stopping it. That is the question. It's how do we deal with it? How do we mitigate how the, the right. severity of it? Right. And all these people who are saying like, oh, we'll just, you know, uh, there will be some kind of scientific innovation that will allow us to reverse climate change. It's like, no, no. The only way that we can approach this is by having a, a system of governance and a system that that genuinely looks after for people when when they get displaced, Right. Uh, this is something that I bring up very frequently. Um, when Cuba got hit by Hurricane Irma, 10 people died. 10 people, right? Uh, Irma was a Cat 5 hurricane. It direct hit on Cuba. 10 people die. Uh, Maria hits Puerto Rico, 3,000 people die. And so it's, it's this. And Puerto like, Rico is still like, if I'm not, they're it, probably still without power at this point. A lot of, a like lot of what, areas. Six, yeah. A lot has of areas. Been, has it been a year? Almost. Yeah. Been? Yeah. That's insane. It's, yeah. And so th- this is the thing where, where we just have not organized society in a, in a way that looks out for everybody. Right. And where, where does that start? I, I think it starts with, you know, doing, doing organizing, getting people to, you know, uh, Right to stop being this, as Mark said, the sack of potatoes. Right, uh, like an actual, an actual cohesive, like group of people who realize that we're stronger together. Right, and yeah, it's it, it's hard it's hard to organize like that. But you know, 
what are, what no other choice. choice do we have? Yep. Yeah, exactly. What are we going to do? Lay down and die? There's, right. That's that's nihilism, <laughs> right? Uh, like, uh, yeah, man. People people very frequently call me a nihilist for like thinking that electoral politics isn't the answer to our problems, and that really frustrates me because it's like, what what if politics is just voting every two years? I don't know what. Why don't you just own a bunker somewhere? Right. How is that? That is almost that's, that's more nihilist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's nihilism. Yeah. Uh, fucking just giving up on any real movement, giving up on any real any real power uh, that you can have in your daily life. Uh, why why would you give up like that? I just don't it doesn't make sense to me. And uh you know, the only the only way to do that is is to, you know, tell them that they that a better world is possible and if they say no, then say we're going to build a better world without you. Right. You know, you can you, you're coming along for the ride, whether you like it or not. I think that's a good uh, that's a good way to wrap up the, cool. the episode. Uh, but I do want to take a moment to let you share if you sure. if you want to any social media links at oh, yeah. uh, handles, whatever. Yeah, definitely follow this man. <laughs> so uh, jo- join our shit posting circle. <laughs> yeah, it's good, folks. Uh, join us on Twitter. Uh, I am at rules underscore follower on Twitter. Uh, a very serious handle uh, <laughs> uh, came out of this. Uh, people keep telling me that uh, you need to follow the rules when it comes to union organizing. No, you don't. Uh, just <laughs> nice. listen to the IWW. Uh, they'll they'll tell you that that that's wrong. Um, if you're in Austin, we've got uh, Eric Blanc coming on May first uh, to talk about the uh, the teacher strikes that have gone through uh, that have swept the nation. And West Virginia, California, Oklahoma, everywhere. And uh, he's going to be talking about his book, which is called Red State Revolt. Uh, we're going to be hosting him on May the 1st. Uh, location to be determined, but uh, please come out. It's going to rule. Eric Blanc, uh, he writes for Jacobin. So, uh, yeah, uh, if if you want, join DSA too. <laughs> we, we do good work. Uh, I, uh, to toot my own horn, <laughs> Uh, I think we, I think we're, we're working on it, right? And so, if you're talking about getting organized, uh, that's one way to do it. Or, uh, you know, get involved. That's really the, that's really the one message that I have to everyone. Uh, there's nothing better than to fight for what you believe in. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> we're gonna win. Once again, Paul, thanks so much. Uh, and again, uh, his Paul's at rules underscore follower on Twitter. Be sure to uh, follow this man. Give him a follow. Join in on the shit posting brigade. <laughs> we post about cum. We post about revolution <laughs> and uh, whatever else. Uh, yeah, Screeds so. against liberalism, folks. Absolutely. It's good. But uh, this is a podcast with Cooper Cherry, and we are signing off. Thanks for having me on. Peace.